0: Yo, what's up everyone? Today's guest is Dr. Peter Enns, and Peter Enns is a biblical scholar, a theologian, writer, and somewhat of a comedian to me. And he's a contributor to the Huffington Post and Patheos, and he's also notable for his book, The Evolution of Adam, in which he questions the belief that Adam was a historical figure. And his most recent book, The Bible Tells Me So, Why Defending Scripture Has Made Us Unable to Read It, which is what we'll be talking about today. So Peter, it's good to have you on the show, man.
1: Thanks, Josh. Good to be here.
0: All right. So, you know, one of the things I really appreciate about you, it's it's not only your scholarship, first of all, but it is your humor, <laughs> you know, because yeah. I see it everywhere. You know, I didn't recognize it before, <laughs> but, you know, I, I see it everywhere in your latest book, your website. I visited the other day and even in some of your, your Facebook posts, you know, and to be honest, it's not something I see too often with a lot of the scholars that I follow, at least how they come off in public, you know. So what yeah. I admire about you that so you can take some of these heavy topics and then write them for as you say in your website, quote unquote normal people, you know. Yeah. And so, you know, since this is your first time on the show, I like to start off with you just sharing your story. Cause, you know, uh-huh. I don't wanna just get into the academic stuff right away. I, I really yeah. want my listeners to to get a glimpse of who Peter Enns is, you know, your journey. Yeah. Where did you get your humor? How has the Bible <laughs> played a role in your life? And and if you could just touch a little bit on the that controversy that happened at at Westminster Theological Seminary, because I found that part pretty interesting. So if you could just share your story with us.
1: Sure. Well, I mean, uh, just getting back to the humor part, I just, I sort of can't help it, but I remember, (laughs) um, you know, when uh, um, uh, Brian McLaren were sort of, we were interviewing each other about a year or so ago, and he actually asked me in the interview, basically, you know, what happened to you in your life that makes you um, like to joke around a lot, which was a very honest and good question, because sometimes people joke (laughs) because they were beaten Something or, or you know, some of the best comedians are—they actually are, suffer from depression. Right, right. Heard you know, about that's that. just the way we going But that's <laughs> not me. I just—I'm—I'm I'm not a comedian. I just joke around a lot, you know, sure, and sure. it's sort of my personality. And I've—I'm—I'm I've, I'm old enough not to have to feel like I have to diagnose it. It's just who I am, and it's—and—and and why can't we just sort of have a relaxed time about talking about some heavy and important things? Yeah. Um, and and then hopefully, you know. um I don't. I don't really have a method to the madness, but I know that sometimes uh, humor can just sort of take defenses down.
0: Exactly. And
1: and to me, that's a very important part of this, um, where you know, um, you, you know, it's best to talk about these kinds of things like over a beer, or right. if you're Baptist, over a cup of coffee. Something, <laughs> sort of the meal where you're sharing things with people, and just to keep it a little bit more relaxed, where the right. hackles aren't all the time. So
0: yeah, and, it just keeps people more yeah. open.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, why not? I mean, what do we know? You know, at Exactly. The end of the day, we don't know everything, so why don't we just sort of be open and have that posture, and sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, for some people, humor can can work that way, and that's, that's sort of, that's how I am, so that's just the way it's going to be.
0: Oh, know? it's all good. I, I'm a goofball, too. That's why I, I really like your stuff. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah and, 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 you know, I know there are a lot of people out there, I mean, you know, academics who are just really, really, really funny people, and it comes out sometimes, but sometimes it doesn't, and mm-hmm. I know that... Um, there can sometimes be barriers to sort of being yourself when you're an academic, um, but I just I don't have those kinds of barriers, and it doesn't make me better or worse. It's just my personality. But yeah. I know sometimes hard to sort of cross over from the professorial kind of vibe to not. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, it's hard, and that's fine. You know, but that's that's just everybody's different. Yeah, because
0: kind of like you know people wonder, should I be serious all the time so people could take me seriously, you know? um, Because, like, for me, it's pretty interesting because, like, when I was writing my first book, there's this one... Agent who was interested in my work, and then she's like, you know, Josh, I saw some of your videos, and I like you because you you smile and you laugh a lot in your in your speaking, and I don't see a lot of uh, preachers do that. You know, she was actually mentioning evangelicals, but you know, it was just something that this is just who I am too, because I hear about that about comedians. They say there's that dark side. We're just trying to make people laugh because we're actually depressed in private, <laughs> you know, you know. But it's not like that for everybody. And just like you, yeah. I just like having fun. You
1: know. Yeah, I just think that sometimes things are just funny that they are. <laughs> and that's all there is to it. And uh yeah, and and people guard themselves a lot because of reputation and things. Exactly, yeah. Not that we should never care about those things, but yeah. that's that's sort of, that's one of the downturns of being like I guess um a spiritual leader, yeah. um, whether it's pastor or some other kind of leader or professor, because you're still a spiritual leader as a Christian professor on some level, and, yeah. and sometimes it's like, well, people won't take me seriously, and I sort of get that, but I want to turn it around, like, who cares who takes you seriously? <laughs> that's not even the point exactly, of it. Yeah, yeah. Seriously, the point is that what are you trying to say, and why are you trying to say it? Yeah. And, and um, you know, so that's just the way it is. Oh, I'm it's all good. my own existence here. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: It's all good. So yeah, yeah. yeah sh- share a little bit about your journey. That'll be cool.
1: Well, yeah, I guess um long and short of it, uh, you know, I was sort of, I was raised in a in a Christian home, but not an evangelical one. My parents were immigrants from Germany, so mm-hmm. um but I was raised in um sort of Lutheran, I guess, and uh-huh. uh and that was wonderful. I mean, I was raised with the knowledge of God and and um and all that. And in high school I guess I had you know, a pretty standard evangelical conversion experience at a Nazarene church, which was a beautiful place. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've always also been sort of a, a questioning, intellectually, you know, left-brain-driven kind of person, and that's the right part of the brain, right? The left mm-hmm. brain's... You know- yeah, the right. Yeah. Reins, the, I don't have the creative side, <laughs> um, you know. But uh, you know, I, I was always sort of driven by by questions and questions leading to more questions. That's sort of my love language, you know. That's that's how I operate. Other people don't, and that's fine. But that's just sort of me. And all that led me to, you know, thinking about faith and ignoring it for a while in high school, and then going to a Christian college. I went to Messiah College, which is mm-hmm. in Central PA, which was a great place. Um, even though there are rivals now at Eastern University. I have to be careful about saying <laughs> nice things about Anyway, uh, but you know, just getting into sort of questioning, and, and, and I relay in the book a little story, in, and the Bible tells me so that you mentioned, um, a little story about sort of this epiphany I had after graduating college that I was hanging out with a couple friends of mine. One was a nice guy, an atheist philosophy major. Another one was a Christian who went to another Christian college. And we knew each other in high school, and these guys were actually debating fine points of the existence of God or all mm. that, and I didn't know what they were talking about. You know, <laughs> I went to Christian college, and I, you know, I played baseball and this and that, but I wasn't really fired to think about my faith in a deeper way, and that really mm. motivated me to sort of read, and read anything I could get my hands on, and... um that sort of developed in over three years. of a sudden, I found myself in seminary and, uh, you know, loving it and, and then, you know, loving it so much, I said, I want to do more of this and going to grad school and studying um, ancient Near Eastern languages and civilizations, so-called, which is basically Old Testament mm. in its ancient context. That's really what I did. And um, right. that was at Harvard. And then I, you know, I left from there and it's, and it's been, I mean, my life has been, this conversation between faith and learning hmm. and not everyone's like that but a lot of people are you know and that that's me and I, I think it's actually taken me a lot of years to actually embrace that and be comfortable with the fact that i'm sort of an intellectual journeyman hmm. that's that's how i express my faith and that comes out of my blog and the books that i write
0: yeah no that's cool i mean like so I'm assuming like when you were growing up as like just a, like a simple faith probably, like were you just taking the Bible at face value, like in inerrancy?
1: No, I wasn't raised with that. And, and, oh, okay. and I'm, I'm thankful that I didn't have, and I mean that not in a snide way, but I'm okay. thankful that I didn't grow up having sort of the Bible presented to me
0: oh, okay. in
1: that fashion. Um by either parents or, you know, the Lutheran Church that I grew up in. It was just a different vibe. It was—the Lutherans are more liturgical. Okay. um, And not that I like that, but it's just—it wasn't sort of like sola scriptura, Bible, get the Bible right so you can know God better. It was more the Bible is non-negotiably a part of the tradition, and Mm. you're engaging it, but it wasn't—you know, I didn't learn Bible stories as a kid. Which is another thing that I'm sort of thankful for, you know. I, I you know, the Noah story as you know, a story for kids, which it isn't, you know. And <laughs> I, I, I didn't have some of the same experiences that a lot of evangelicals have. Um, so, you know, I, I think, you know, in that respect, I didn't grow up with like a strong view of the Bible. That sort of came to me more after college when I was reading and stuff, and then in seminary. Um, you know, um, an education in Scripture at a place where, you know, inerrancy is very much a part of the language. And that's sort of, mm. for me, where more that dimension started, and I started having conversations between myself and that whole paradigm, that oh. whole way of thinking. And okay. you know, that, that conversation continued, and in some respects still continues now.
0: Okay. Yeah, so so can you touch a little bit on the whole Westminster thing, the seminary incident that happened?
1: Well, yeah, I mean they're are different. I am happy to talk about it. There are I mean as long as we remember that you know, there were a lot of people involved in that oh, okay. and people's lives were involved in it and it's not simply a matter of a couple of doctrines. It was a much deeper, broader oh, okay. kind of unsettling time at the school and i don't want to presume to speak for other people okay um i don't want to presume to you know say here's what happened <laughs> okay. it's not like that there was a lot of sin all around oh you know? okay okay it's not, it's, not a, it's not the the story that you sort of tell in a podcast or something uh, um at least not without a fleet of therapists on hand <laughs> With this stuff with people, but um, I'd, I'd say the, the, the long and short of it is that um, when I came to, the, to Westminster Seminary, which people may not know, it's a pretty, um, at that point at least, what I call a conservative but sane mm. uh, uh, seminary, where you know the world of thought was very much valued, but within certain parameters. And I was hired there. Um, I graduated as a student in 1989, went to Harvard for five years, came back in 1994, and I was hired by the president at the time to be part of what he called a trialogue between left, center, and right. Mm. Within the tradition, I was hired to be more on the left side of things to sort of push issues to get people thinking, and others were hired to be more centrist, and others were hired to be more, um, uh, you know, in tune with the specific tradition of the school and what the parameters are. Okay. And that... That made for, it turned out that made for a very, very difficult conversation because, in that tradition, which again, you have to know a little bit about the history of when it was founded in the 1920s in the wake of Mm -hmm. like the modernist fundamentalist controversies that we know from the Scope Monkey Trial and things Mm -hmm. like that. You know, that's, it was founded in that respect, in in that era. And, um, you know, the, the, the long and short of it is that that kind of institution founded when it was for the purposes for which it was founded, which is to protect orthodoxy. That's right. why it was founded. Trialogues right. um, are not really going to work, hmm. because the very fact that you're having a dialogue or a trialogue already suggests that you're compromising on theology. Hmm. And so, you know, um, the, the 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 right side of that tradition, I, I'm not everyone will agree, but I'm you know, I'll, I'll put my foot in the cement here on this one. The right side of that dimension, which is essentially a fundamentalist dimension, mm-hmm. uh, uh, tradition, the, the right side of that um, exists to not have the dialogue and trialogue that some of us were seeking to have. Right,
0: right. It seeks
1: to protect the past and not sort of to expand on it or change it or think differently about it. Mm-hmm. And my temperament is very much, well, let's think about this from another angle, and what do we come up with? Or what parts of our tradition are really valuable and that we need to continue on into the future? What, what parts of our tradition are um, are not as valuable? And, mm. and maybe are probably very limited because, you know, we're following theological standards that are from the 17th century. Right. You know, what sort of things have changed since then to make us think differently? And um, basically as a result... Uh, you know, there were a lot of shifts at the school. People were being hired, administrators, faculty. And the right side of that trialogue began uh, gaining power. And mm. as a result, many people left. See, it wasn't just me. Okay. The first person to go was the former president, Sam Logan, who was the huh. great person, still is, friend of mine, um, who was trying to do just amazing things at the school. Um, I left, and uh, within a very few years um, of the 20 faculty members that were there, When I was a faculty member, when I left in 2008, within a few years, about five or six left. And right now, there's one left. Wow. There's a fleet overhaul at the school. So it was in the context of those larger kinds of shifts, and I would say fears about changing those larger contexts, That a lot of this stuff happened, and my story is just one of them. <sighs> it just happens to be more public because I wrote a book.
0: Right, right, and that's how I heard about it, you know, because I think but, you mentioned that in your book about how you you lost your job, you know, and I'm like, oh man, that sucks, right. <laughs> you know. Well, it, yeah,
1: it does, but you know, it's okay. It just it turned out fine. God is good, and yeah. Uh, you know, it was it was uh, good for me, from my point of view, to leave because things had gotten to a point where I felt it was not salvageable. Right, right. I made the decision to leave, saying, "This is, you know, for me, this is a yeah. sinking ship, and I just need to get off it."
0: So. Yeah, and there was no need to push anything. So, okay. Right. Yeah, so well, let's talk about your latest book then. You know, so it's called "The Bible Tells Me So: Why Defending Scripture Has Made Us Unable to Read It." So, why why the title?
1: Also known as the Yellow Book.
0: Ah, and the Yellow Book, which I really like. It kind of threw me off with the cover. I was like, "Oh wow, it's it's very different from your other covers." <laughs> you know, yeah. so it's the kind of covers I like to see. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, yeah, me too. So. <laughs> and it's
0: bright in yellow, so it really stands out. So I like that. So, so what does the title mean?
1: Well, the the basic gist of the book is that. Um, so much of of our reading, especially evangelical, conservative reading of the Bible, is centered on defending certain ways of thinking. Mm. And that actually helps us, it keeps us from seeing, I think, the the richness and the depth that's actually in the Bible, which doesn't always conform to what we think the Bible should be. Mm. So the point is, you know, the Bible tells me so. Well, this is what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that... It's not an, an owner's manual. It's not a rule book. It's not um, sort of, you know, operating instructions on how to be a Christian where you find a verse and you sort of do this. Or it's it's not a book that tells us, like, objectively what happened in the past. It's not a history book. Yeah. It's something—we it, it, it's, it's, uh, have to use different language to define it, and, and it's from reading the Bible itself that you learn the need to develop different kinds of language and vocabulary for talking about the Bible.
0: Yeah yeah i mean that's the world that i grew up in though like it was an yeah. instruction manual you know you want to learn about sex or everything it's it's all in there you know right. because it's god's rule book so to speak and I, I guess that's not the tradition you grew up in but that's how it is for a lot of us <laughs> for my friends yes. and i and so that that's why it was more it's like this is god's word and this is him speaking to me directly and but right. it was it was always those struggles with interpretation you know and and, and for me if, if i were to have had read your book a long time ago it probably would have made me uncomfortable in some ways mm-hmm. you know um, yeah. but at the same time i feel like it would conf- it would confirm some things that i would be thinking in my in my mind and in my heart like yeah you know some of these passages right. are problematic but at the same time it would it would make me really uncomfortable back in the day you know but but why do you think there's a lot of fear among christians to share their their innermost thoughts about the bible <laughs>
1: Well, I think it's part of, you know, at least the Western American evangelical and fundamentalist culture, which has a long history of defending the Bible um, and sort of keeping it as, like, the rock-solid basis of our faith. And when you have a Bible that's supposed to function that way, um, you, you can't have things like theological contradictions. You can't have you know, Gospels actually disagreeing on some things. And you can't have, you know, in the Old Testament, there are two histories of Israel, Chronicles and then Samuel and Kings, and you can't have them saying really fundamentally different things, because, you know, God would never do that to us. Yeah. And, and you know, the the response to that is, but he did. Right look at it, read it. I mean, what right. what does this tell us about God? What does it tell us about the Bible? What does it tell us about our faith? Rather than coming to it with sort of the way it should be, let's try to let the Bible be the Bible. And mm. when we do, we, we I think we come up with different language to describe what the Bible is and how it functions in the Christian life.
0: Yeah. You know, for me, because when I was growing up, I actually... You know, quote unquote, got serious with my faith, whatever that means. When I was seventeen, and and it's when I got into apologetics, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. You know, so I was reading all these different apologetic books, and it was all about like proving, you know, that the Bible's historically reliable and all that stuff. And so, you know, I mean, I would read these guys, these Christian apologists, that they were they were defending the Bible like tooth and nail. You know, just making it seem right. consistent all the way through, like it's divine in origin, and mm-hmm. there are no contradictions, it's historically reliable, et cetera. You know, but so in your opinion. Are they not taking the Bible seriously?
1: Um, well, yeah, I mean. Yeah, let's create some controversy here. In my opinion, yeah. not, they're actually not taking the Bible seriously. I yeah. think they're not taking God seriously. Yeah. Now, the thing is, I say that, and I... I, I, know I know you're
0: not judging their hearts, I know that. Yeah, yeah.
1: I, I want to keep one foot in a safe spot saying, yeah. again, I'm just a person. Right. But that would be my argument. Right. That would be the point that I'm trying to make, and we let's talk about this, you know, do you see any sense in what I'm saying? Right. But, you know, I think when we, no matter how holy or pious we think we're being, when we oppose onto this diverse collection of texts, which we call the Bible, Old and New Testament, when we impose upon that a way of thinking that says it's got to be a certain way, yeah. and then we actually go to the Bible and we actually have to have apologetics an industry in Christianity called apologetics yeah. that has to defend the Bible. You're not actually defending the Bible, you're defending a way of thinking about the Bible. Right. And if if the Bible creates so many problems for you that you have to keep defending it, maybe your theory's not very good. <laughs> right. maybe, maybe that's what needs to be... Maybe, maybe the problem isn't the people pointing out the problems with the Bible, yeah. it's your theory that says the Bible should act a certain way when it clearly doesn't.
0: Yeah. And I, and I like that. I like that, you know, because, you know, so do I. yeah, you know, obviously, <laughs> you know, so in, in the book, you know, you say that the Bible isn't the problem, right? As you're saying now. And so but yet there are so many issues surrounding it. And so I, you know, like for me, I read a lot of atheist books, you know, so so you even hear about a lot of atheists even saying that they became atheists because of the Bible. So sure, so sure. the Bible isn't the problem. And you're basically saying it's not it's not the Bible itself. That's a problem. It's, it's the expectations that people have.
1: Right. It's what we bring into it. And, you know, I tell atheists, uh, I say, yeah, I would be an atheist, too, (laughs) if I drew the same sort of, like, the thing is that, okay, if if your two choices are sort of a fundamentalist way of looking at the Bible and being an atheist, you're better off being an atheist from an intellectual point of view.
0: Sure. Sure. Right
1: and the thing is that you know you know I I bagged Christianity because of the Bible and I say no you bagged it because you were taught a certain way that the Bible's supposed to work and you bought that assumption and you're seeing clearly that it doesn't work and so your only option now is like faith or not faith.
0: Yeah that's like they're it's evil. all
1: centered on yeah. the Bible it's all centered on a certain way of looking at the Bible that you know that's why we spend so much time defending that we're not really reading it. Right
0: right what could,
1: may, maybe what it could be worth.
0: Right. So yeah, exactly. That's what I've seen it, a lot of times people they, they grow up in Christian fundamentalism and then they reject that so their default is atheism. You know. So for yourself since as you were evolving just understanding the way scripture we can approach scripture, you know, how did that affect your faith in, in God?
1: How did what specifically affect the faith? Uh,
0: just like your understanding of how you don't have to take it Oh.
1: You know, well, at, yeah. at, literally in right. that sense. And it's basically, for me, it's, it's, that's part of an ongoing narrative of my life that's being written, um, mm-hmm. you know, a, a journey of faith, a pilgrimage. I use these words a lot because they mean a lot to me. I mean them when I say it, that, um, you know, maybe God can't be captured quickly in how I do exegesis of the Bible, right maybe god is bigger than that and i think it's 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 brought me to a point and this is me i mean other people may not go to this point and that's fine right but for me it's it's bringing me to a point has been bringing me to a point for a decade where um i have to i have to let go mm-hmm. of um trying to have some sense of rightness or certainty in my thinking uh-huh. i have to hold things more provisionally and not equate the reality of god by how i happen to be thinking at that time Uh right so it's it's more a matter of letting go of the need to know and the need to be right and to think more of trusting god whether or not i know or understand or whether or not things work the way that they do I, i think you know for me reading the bible has been a process similar to like lament psalms in the old testament or like the book of job you know where um the way things are supposed to be don't work out right right and then you sort of say okay now what do you do that that was job's problem job's problem was that you know the righteous are supposed to be blessed and the wicked are supposed to suffer and be punished but he was being punished but he didn't do anything Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and his friends were saying yeah, you did. And Job said no, I didn't. Said, yeah, you did. And it goes on 40 chapters. Yeah, yes, you did No, I didn't. This is back and forth argument. Yeah. At the end, Job is actually vindicated because you know what? He didn't does he didn't do anything to deserve what was happening to him. Yeah. The ultimate answer lies in mystery, mm. not in knowing, right? And in, and here's the real kick in the pants with with the book of Job, which is so relevant. It's actually central to my book. Job's friends were saying were giving him basically a theology of retribution, mm. that consequences have actions. That's a very biblical idea. Right. That's 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 in Proverbs, but more so it's in Deuteronomy, mm-hmm. right? It's 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 actions have consequences, mm-hmm. and you know it, that's why the Israelites were exiled. Their mm. actions have consequences. So if you're suffering consequences, Job, there's probably an action behind it, and God doesn't punish for nothing. Yeah. So you must have done something. The whole book undermines that Biblical notion, huh. which right. means there's there's diversity in thinking. You, you have actually, in the yeah. Old Testament, an argument <laughs> about the nature of God and what it means to have faith in this God. What is this God up to?
0: Right.
1: You have Psalms that blame God for not being faithful to the Israelites because he took them into exile. Right. Psalm 89, you have another Psalm, um, 136, 132, somewhere in there, 130 someplace, where it's the exact opposite, like, yeah, we got exactly what we deserved. See, right. within the Psalter, you've got an intra- intracanonical debate, right. and to me, that's really exciting for a person who thinks of his faith as a journey, as mm-hmm. a pilgrim, because I'm watching This is what the life of faith looks like. You don't always know. The Bible doesn't give you the final answers. It actually models for you a journey. It models for you at times a debate and a disagreement. Hmm. And this is something that, um, you know, by and large, Judaism has a much better handle on than Christianity, in my opinion. This this Mm -hmm. idea that debate is part of what you do with the Bible, part of what you do with the faith. And like I said, to me that's pretty exciting. Yeah.
0: I mean, would that be hard for some Christians, though, just because many times when you're going through a difficult situation in life, they say, you know, just start reading the Bible to find comfort. But in, in some sense, it, it could be hard if you can't find any answers, you know yes. what I mean? If there's yes, no certainty.
1: Yeah, because the comfort, though, Josh, is not in finding the answers to your problem. The comfort may be in communing with God and fellowshipping with other saints, some of whom are in the Bible. Uh, um, right. Who are also struggling with some of those same kinds of things, and that's why it can be a comfort for right. people
0: to identify you
1: know, to identify with them. But also, you see, you right. have within the Bible these 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 uh, this, these multiple voices, right. where at times you know it is really a pick me up praise. Mm-hmm. But sometimes those are the things we identify with. So, see, I think you know reading the Bible in those times is not bad advice. I think it's great advice. Mm-hmm. You're just not going to necessarily find the quick answer to that solves your problem. You know, what if God wants you to sit in your problem for a while?
0: Right. Right. What if
1: something? What if, like Job, there's something to learn, or like Ecclesiastes or like Lament Psalms? What if there's value in not knowing?
0: Right. right. And that that's hard for a lot of people, right? You know, even for myself, like. I I totally feel what you're saying. Don't know where I understand what you're talking about. Like, I'm just trying to speak for a lot of people that have had a similar journey like me. Like, growing up, when I would have a problem, I would do the whole lucky dipping thing, you know, where I'd close my eyes and say, Holy Spirit, guide my finger when I point to a certain part of the page. And, you know, because I I was literally taught, you know, the Bible has the answers. And I've had people approach me, pastors approach me, saying, Let me prove to you that the Bible can explain such and such and such and such. I'm like, wow, you know, when I was a young person and. So I've, I've had that kind of that framework, that mentality for many years, and which is why I got into apologetics, trying to prove everything. But I, I like on how your approach is to the text and just noticing that it's not the text that's the problem. It's, it's us with our with our probably right. false expectations that we have to say, hey, these people in the Bible have issues similar to you in a sense where they all have struggles. And many times right. they didn't have the answers. And sometimes the answer is in the questions and in, in just trust. You know, just trusting in, in the love of God or, or the mystery or whatever you want to call it, you know. But in the book, you know, you even say that the Bible isn't clear about big issues, you know, like God. Mm-hmm. But but if that's true, like, like, what is it good for if we can't even be sure that it's correct about God? You know, should we? Because like I've, what I was taught is you read the Bible to know God, but if it's not clear about right. God then why should I read it?
1: <laughs> right. Well, I, I think, you know, there's a lot going on there in that question, but I think <laughs> it's not that the Bible is not right about God. It's that what we read in the Bible is the genuine spiritual reflections of people who are in communion with God and how they are experiencing God, mm-hmm. right? So, so the reality of God, that's a given. The mystery of God, I think, frankly, is a given in the Bible, too. But mm-hmm. you so- sometimes people, pilgrims of faith, will experience God differently depending on circumstances, and they write about that. That's why you have different portraits of God in the Old Testament. The portrait you get from Lament Psalms is a different portrait than you might get from Psalms of Praise. The portrait you get from, say, you know, maybe Deuteronomy um, is maybe a different portrait you'll get from, like, one of the major or minor prophets, right? Because it's written at a different time for different purposes, and and we're sort of like when we read the Bible, we're we're opening up windows onto uh, the reality of, of 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 an ancient faith, mm-hmm. communing with God, right? And and we're seeing windows, and 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 we get to sort of grapple with what they're sort of presenting to us, and that's a very different kind of question than yeah. are they getting God right or not? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, in a way they are. God is present, and God is present with all of those experiences and emotions. Mm -hmm. That's a good thing to walk away with.
0: Yeah.
1: I think reading the Bible. Right. Right? Right. But not like, you know, here's God, and let's sort of exhaust God in the first chapter of a systematic theology book. (laughs) Right, right. And the only way to do that, frankly, is to ignore certain parts of the Bible where God is portrayed in ways that give people problems. Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah, we'll touch on that because you know on the topic of of god you know christians claim to be monotheists you know but then they you know they claim to believe in one god but but does the bible affirm that there is only one god
1: um well not just christians but jews affirm that as well and and muslims yeah yeah but um you know in in antiquity in the old testament it's 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 not hard to find the um how ancient israelites clearly at least through much of their history in the bible assumed what everyone else of the ancient world assumed which means the heavenly places are full (laughs) (laughs) it's not just one god exists but the question for the ancient israelites was which god do you worship Hmm. and that's why you have like psalms that are saying you know for for Yahweh, our God is the great God. He's the great King above yeah. all gods. Right? That meant for us, it's like that sort of flowery poetic language nonsense. Mm. Yeah. That meant something to the people back then because they had a real choice. Right. You could you, Baal, Molech, Chemosh. You know the Egyptian gods, the Assyrian, the Babylonian gods. You, you had a choice. Mm. I mean, th- this you had a choice of which God you wanted to worship, and and the case that the Old Testament makes from beginning, literally from beginning to end, is that Israel's God, he alone is worthy of your worship. Mm-hmm. Why? Because he's the creator, and he delivered you. Mm-hmm. He's, he's your savior, and he is the creator. There, that That's why, and, and you know, that's sort of like common language in the ancient world, like the great God worth worshiping is the one who creates. And that's why Genesis 1 begins with the story of creation, not just because, hey, let's start at the beginning. Yeah. Now, let's let's have a logical thing here. It's not logical. It's yeah. it's like this is like the reason why you worship one god over another god because this is the creator and the creation story that the Bible tells is similar to other stories of the ancient world, but also very different because yeah. it's presenting a different way of looking at God from an ancient point of view, right? Mm. So. so
0: I mean, does it does that mean that the Bible affirms that there are more than one God, but but then just the the Christian God or the Jewish God is just superior to the other one? So
1: that's definitely what it affirms. Yeah, I mean, that's again, that's that's not a secret hidden in one or two corners of the Old Testament. That's sort of a running monologue, um, um, dialogue rather between the prophets and and um, the Israelites, and, you know, don't worship those gods. And he, 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 later, later on, like in Isaiah and Jeremiah, they start, they start sounding like, you know, those other gods really aren't gods.
0: Right. <laughs>
1: you know, and, but the thing is, like, you have, you, you're watching almost Israel grow up, so to speak, in the mm-hmm. Bible. Like, you know, in the book of Exodus, which I talk about a little bit in the book, what drives, what fuels the whole theology of that story is that the plagues represent the pantheon of Egypt, Hmm. And one by one, the god of slaves is decimating the god of the Nile, or yeah. the god of death, or the sun god, right, or the yeah. god of fertility, right? The reason why frogs are, you know, the the, the, the plague of frogs, you know, they multiply, whatever, is because at one point in Israel's history, um, uh, the goddess of fertility had the head of a frog, huh. They're saying something about you know the the argument of Exodus is which God is worthy of worship Israel Yahweh or one of the gods of Egypt right and that story is like no our God is worthy of worship but it presents it in such a way that makes sense in the ancient world right right it, it's it's, it's I, I want to avoid the language of what you said before Josh I want to avoid the language of the Bible affirms the existence of many gods. Mm-hmm. I'd rather put it this way, when the Israelites tell their story of God, they tell it in the only language available to them, right. which is the ancient language of polytheism. Mm-hmm. That's how they tell that story. Now, do I believe that there are other gods? No, I don't. Mm-hmm. So you're saying the Bible is wrong. <laughs> I'm not saying the Bible is wrong, I'm saying the Bible is ancient and contextual, right. and we have to use our brains sometimes to sort right. of wrap our arms around that and say, okay, listen, it's different today. And... um you know, we we affirm different things about God because you know this is the post-Christian, a post-Christian, but post-resurrection universe. We're Christians, you know, we you know we 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 don't think in terms of tribal deities right. beating each other
0: up, yeah, right. The
1: Bible does,
0: right. So there's this there's a story, this narrative of just progressive understanding of before you know, they do believe in a lot of gods. You know, you should have no other gods before me. So it kind of implies that there's more than one. But then over time, as you were saying, there's this maturing that's going on and just them recognizing, like, hey, maybe those weren't real gods after all.
1: Yeah, and I think when yeah. you get later on, even in the Old Testament, but certainly in the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament, you have
0: yeah.
1: very much, uh, you know, very clearly a what we call monotheism. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean the, what we've just described is called monolatry mm-hmm. the, the worship of one God but the but the, the acknowledgement of the existence of others but right. monotheism is there actually is only one God well you know by the time you get into this intertestamental Judaism and certainly by Jesus's day monotheism was that's just not questioned mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, and, and I think a lot of it may have to do with the pressure of being in exile in the sixth century and you know having israelites having actually having to live in and around other people (laughs) you know like the babylonians and then coming back to their own land and it's now persians and then greeks and then eventually romans where you had to start thinking about well our god maybe isn't just the tribal god Hmm. maybe this is a bigger god that actually you know has more to say positively about people on the outside yeah which you find in the Old Testament already. It's not. It's not like the Old Testament's only tribal or something. But I think that's the, that's the gist of much of the Bible is, you know, outsiders can be accepted as they become more like us, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and of course, at the other end, the Christian Bible, there are there's Paul who says pretty much the opposite.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the topics I want to cover real quick is you know. You know, there's a lot of violence that goes on in the Bible, you know, whether it's God taking people's lives or committing yeah. genocide. You know, but what do you say to someone who wants to justify those things by saying, well, God, God's sovereign and he can do whatever he wants. You know, he's the author of life, so he can take it.
1: Right. Because um, this I'd is a biggie. This is a
0: biggie for a lot of people. Big
1: issue. I mean, that's why I started the book pretty much talking about that issue. And, I mean, you know, you're absolutely right. God can take a life anytime he wants to. Mm-hmm. But that's an abstract statement that is of no value once you actually start reading these texts. Mm-hmm. What you do, you don't have a God mysteriously taking the lives of people just because he wants to, because he's sovereign. There are specific reasons why. Like for example, the you know the Canaanites in the land of Canaan, they're eradicated so that the Israelites could take the land. Yeah. So this is this is what we would call today genocide to take people's property and take their stuff, which has been used as justification for all sorts of things in Christian history, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Yeah, God can do whatever he wants to, but, you know, and one of my favorite problem verses is Numbers chapter 30, where the Israelites, long story short, defeat the Midianites, who had done some nasty stuff earlier on. They kill the men, they kill the non-virgin women, they kill the boys, and they only leave alive the virgin women. (laughs) girls and they sort of divide them up between themselves between the soldiers between the priests or whatever yeah. and you know you look at that and you say okay God is sovereign he can do whatever he wants to <laughs> like like dividing virgin women <laughs> as war see and and I think a much easier way of looking at that at least for me a way that makes more sense in terms of the broader biblical witness is that d- these reflect ways of thinking that make perfect sense in an ancient tribal context right right, right? I, I don't think we should do that okay i don't think god wants us to take other people's land away from them yeah. kill them all and enslave people i don't i don't believe that because i have for one thing the new testament to deal with right? But also Israel's ongoing reflection on that within the Old Testament. See, most Jews I know don't believe that either, Mm -hmm. right? Because they've had to think about what is God like today versus what was God like yesterday or something, right? Mm So that's an ever-present theological problem. So, I mean, I get the abstract thing that God can do whatever he wants to, but still, you know, when the dust settles and you're reading the Bible all by yourself with nobody watching you, and it's sort of like you're alone with your thoughts, and you look at that and you say, You know, this is this God is no different than the one a lot of evangelicals say caused 9 11.
0: Right, right.
1: People's belief in a vindictive, vengeful God who kill the bad guys and take their stuff, you know, our God acts that way too in the Old Testament. And yeah. the common denominator is this is a tribal culture, this yeah. is how they thought about God, right? Yeah, And the real offense of the Bible, Josh, the real offense of the Bible is that God allows himself to be represented that way, mm-hmm. right? And that's what C.S. Lewis calls the irreverent doctrine of the Incarnation. It's an irreverent doctrine because God is portrayed in ways that make sense to people where they are. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. So, so would you take those accounts as, as being historical, but they just got it wrong because it was just their worldview at the time? Or would you take these as just stories that are possibly um, made up? Or?
1: Well, I, th- I think what, what you have in, for example, the conquest stories yeah. of and Joshua, I, yeah. Exactly. I would take those as much later memories and reflections that are driven by certain theological needs. Mm-hmm. that reflect on battles or skirmishes that are stories that have been handed down for many, many generations. Mm-hmm. So I think there's something historical there, but the question is what is the historical that's there? It's probably unrecoverable in right. in a less academic sense. Mm-hmm. But what we do have is we have the Israelites telling their story that involves those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Right. You see, that's not even the whole story, though, because, you know, you have the books of Joshua and then Judges, but in Joshua and Judges, you know, clearly the mandate to kill the Canaanites wasn't carried out because they're still mm. there, Yeah, right? Yeah. Which just sort of causes a problem at one point or another. But, you know, you have the insider-outsider thinking of Joshua and Judges, but then, you know, elsewhere in the Old Testament, it's not as clear. And, you know, the, my favorite example is the book of Jonah, which, you know, God says, preach repentance to the Ninevites. The Ninevites, that was the capital, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Assyria was the hated superpower. They were heinous. They were horrible. You know, yeah. they, they were violent people. And, and, and um, you know, Jonah doesn't want to do that. That's what winds him up in the belly of a fish. Mm-hmm. He doesn't mm-hmm. want to, but God wants him to. And, you know, the punchline, I guess, of the book is that maybe, maybe God is interested in more maybe God actually cares about other peoples and other tribes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's why, you know, I think and others, you know, this is sort of common among biblical scholars, but Jonah is probably a post-exilic book. Mm -hmm. After dealing with exile and how you have to be around other people, it makes you think differently about God, and maybe makes you think better about God. As opposed to the book of Nahum, which is almost next to the book of Jonah, uh, that's written much earlier, before the exile, and there... You know, the fall of Nineveh is celebrated. Mm-hmm. Everyone will hear of it, and they're wiped off the face of the earth. And isn't God great? See, within our own Bible, the people who compiled the Bible were very happy. In fact, they probably found it necessary to have both of those things reflected in their collection of books. Mm-hmm. Showing something, it's creating a dialogue, it's creating a discussion. Right.
0: right. right. I mean, but, so would you take some of these accounts, just in your opinion, that they're just stories and not necessarily historical, accurate accounts? Yeah, I mean, yes. certainly,
1: yeah. I mean, that's, that's, okay. that is that's um, an option okay. that is not, for me, the least bit problematic or offensive. Yeah. But I know it would be for some, and that's okay. I mean, just the thing is that I'm not trying to turn people into me. Sure, You know, sure. some writing, I'm reflecting on things that a lot of people appreciate, some don't, and that's fine. Yeah. Um, But, you know, they can work those things out on their own, and I think God is with both of us.
0: Sure, sure. No, it's all good. You know, Let, let's move on to the New Testament, though. You know, like, like, That's should part. we should we be surprised by, you know, the different versions of the same story? For instance, Jesus, you know, there are four stories of Jesus, four Gospels, you know, or right. even the accounts of the resurrection. I mean, should we be surprised that there are differences?
1: Well, we should only be surprised if we've been taught that there would never be differences. Right. Right. right, I mean that's 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 the issue, and I think even putting it that way, already privileges sort of a way of thinking that is is going to be a problem. You know, when you start accessing the text, uh, the question I'm not I'm not concerned if anybody is going to be surprised or whether we should be surprised. I'm only concerned with what's there,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and what's there are stories that are diverse enough that they can't be reconciled into one story. Yeah, that, that was tried in the second century. That was tried. And um, it didn't work out to sort of make one big gospel out of the four, because you're not respecting them as pieces of literature, as pieces of theology. And that's why, you know, we have the Bible, uh, the gospel according to Matthew. That's a very important qualification. It's not the gospel, pure and simple, unadulterated objective. It's according to Matthew. And Mark has it differently, although a lot of similarities. Luke, same thing, and John just on his own. Yeah. (laughs) You know, all I can say is that that is what we have. Now the question is, from the eyes of faith, what does this tell us about God? What does it tell us about what the Bible is? Yeah. To me, those are interesting questions to ask. Mm
0: -hmm. I mean, so how reliable would the Bible be? Because, like like I said, you know, there's a lot of, like, believers and unbelievers who listen to this show. And so many of them, they would point out that there are contradictions, you know. Or you even hear Bart Ehrman, you know, because I've read some of his stuff, you know. But in your opinion, are there contradictions in the four Gospels, as some critics argue, or just apparent contradictions?
1: No, I think there are contradictions. Okay. Because people have contradictory experiences, and people want to say different things. Hmm. And so, you know, you're going, to, um, you're going to present things differently. You're going to be aware of facts differently than other people. That's just part of being human. Right, And let's not forget, people wrote the Bible. Yeah, but it was inspired. Okay, fine. Yeah. God inspired real people, as they were, to write. And
0: sure. what we have
1: is four Gospels that diverge. And, you know, contradiction is not always necessarily the best go-to, not because I'm I'm concerned about using it, but it's sure. not always the best word. What you have is maybe divergences in Gospel stories where they just seem to go in very different yeah. directions, yeah. you know. And and ways that still can't be reconciled by sort of a simplistic historical t- template we put over this. Like, okay, this is historical. Yeah. That means it has to sort of line up. And if it doesn't, it's an apparent contradiction. The problem is that we're too stupid or you know clouded <laughs> by our own sin or something to see it. And you know that that is you know I wonder if your own story, Josh, if that's part of your own sort of coming to terms with it. You know, yeah. just sort of like I kept reading the Bible and I kept having to make excuses for it. Yeah. I did. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I always right. had to make excuses for it, so, you know, because of the stuff that I would read, and then, you know, just reading all these apologetic books, my whole, you know, for right. since when I became an adult, that's all that I read, and so, I mean, we, we were taught this is God's Word, you know what I'm saying, so there are no mistakes in it, but if it's not about, you know, historical accuracy, and if there are contradictions because of contradictory experiences, as you say, and, but at the same time, in your book, you call it the Word of God, you know, because of the sacred experiences that people had, but it, but if that's, if that's the case though, like why not? What about the Quran though? Can that still right. be considered the word of God? Because they had their own sacred experiences. Maybe some of their stuff's not historically accurate, but you know, right. you know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, that's why those old apologetics they sort of fall apart because, yeah, I mean maybe the Quran is internally contradictory too, and what makes the Bible different from the yeah. Quran? Uh, very good question, but here's what the answer is not. The mm-hmm. answer is not because the Bible is historically accurate and the Qur'an isn't.
0: Right.
1: It's not because the Bible gives you objective history and the Qur'an gives you subjective biased history. Mm-hmm. All history is biased. All history sure. has an agenda, so to speak, right? Sure. So the question is, you know, what makes the Bible different yeah. is the, the the story that's being told, which centers on Christ. Okay. Now that doesn't say like, and that's how we know, Quran, our our book's better than your book. But what makes the Bible what it is, is that story that it's telling that we're supposed to embody and not just sort of argue about who has a better reading of the Bible, right? And that's a lot more tricky, I think. That's difficult, that's risky. That means that there's much more to this Christian thing than me having better arguments about the Bible. I actually have to live it. Actually, I I tell people... um, This comes up a lot. You know, there's an old saying, be careful how you live. The Bible may be the, you may be the only Bible people read. Right, right. It's a lot worse than that, folks. You may be the only Jesus people see. Hmm. See, that's our focus. Not not living the Bible, because that already presumes it has to be all consistent and fit together. You're part of a big spiritual narrative that goes back thousands of years, and you're doing it in Christ by faith here and now. Sure. And you watch the Bible with its own pilgrims experiencing things in different ways, and that's solace, that's power, that is inspiration for us, yeah, but it doesn't answer all of life's questions hmm. you know it doesn't and now you know you're right, yeah this is not about knowing in our heads that we're right, this is about experiencing a way of life that is confirming, let's say of being right, but in a very different kind of way,
0: right, right. I mean, would no. this, I mean, this might be like a weird question, but I mean, would we be able to add our own experiences and still consider calling it the Bible? Because if, if we talk about our life in Jesus, right. in Christ, I mean, would it sound weird to say, well, I could add to Scripture because I have my own sacred experiences with Jesus and it's Christocentric, you know? <laughs>
1: right. right. Well, I think on an individualistic basis, um, that question has more value than it probably should have. <laughs> because, you know, we think, well, can I do this? Well, the thing is that you're not an I. Uh, you're part of a larger community. Sure. And the thing is that there are certain things that I think I can say the Christian world will never accept or affirm sure. adding to ancient sacred Scripture. Sure, sure. Right? So, but the thing is, see that you still, though, have the same, I think, opportunities about Scripture. What we have there is these these windows, these snapshots of authentic, genuine faith in God that are pictured for us in in ancient ways that also set trajectories for us and how we are to keep I mean Tom Wright has this wonderful analogy of a five act play where, you know, we're in that last act or second to last act, I forget how he puts it, but you know, we're trying to live the biblical story and the Bible is sort of like a core script for us. Yeah, but it's not enough. Yeah, we we have to not quote add to it, but we have to like Shakespearean actors. The Bible is the script. We have to enact out that script sure. in places and in ways that the Bible doesn't even address.
0: Right, right,
1: right. And that's why it's Christians disagree about certain issues. Like <laughs> I think this is the way to be faithful. And I, no, I think that's the way. Well, the Bible is not going to solve those questions for us. That's part of being on this journey. Yeah of faith with other christians
0: yeah yeah and because you know we're just running out of time so i'll just end with this question you know on the topic of jesus how, how did he read his bible then you know did he follow it like a rule book or was he like a creative reader as you were mentioning in your book
1: Well, yeah i don't think jesus followed it as a rule book and i think in part because the judaism of his day was at least you know the, the pharisaical tradition the scribal tradition uh, would debate with the bible Hmm. Um, Jesus wasn't the first person to sort of question or tease out what certain laws meant. You know, the law of divorce, you know, yeah. for example. It's, there's similarity between what Jesus says and what we read in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Right, for right. Example, and, and to be a faithful Jew meant debating fine points of the law, meant debating what does it mean to really obey God? Yeah. Does it mean following the letter? Is there a deeper sense to it? What does that mean? Because, you know, the law pretty much presumes... That you're in your land and you're running it. Yeah, that's the covenant, right? You're, you're, and then you have a king on the throne. It's also supposed to be working out. How do you do that when you're in Babylon? Yeah, right. You can't even sacrifice. What does it mean to do that in the whole in the Roman Empire? Yeah, it's not the, but in the Roman Empire at the time, and that's why you know there's built into Judaism by the time you get to Jesus this dialogue. Now, the thing is that Jesus pushes the dialogue in certain directions, like the Sermon on the Mount, yeah. where he quotes the Ten Commandments in a few places and says, but I say to
0: but you. But I say to you, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's, okay, that's getting a little bit interesting. That's sort of like Jesus presuming um, uh, an authority that might be startling for some people to hear. You yeah. Know? And, and I think that's where, you know, Jesus read the Bible, in, on one level, as a Jew. hmm on another level, as a Jew who might cause problems.
0: Yeah. <laughs> right, Which did.
1: Right. But mm-hmm. the thing is that I'm, I'm very adamant about this, and I don't mean to be um, unnecessarily acerbic, but I, I'm, I every chance I get when it comes up, I say the same thing. Jesus was not an inerrantist. Right. <laughs> not in our sense of yeah. the word. Total respect, reverence, yeah. Scripture.
0: So.
1: But Scripture is there to be engaged with yeah. and interact. And handled very creatively.
0: Yeah, he read it for what it was, you know.
1: Yeah, right, right, right. I think Jesus had a really good doctrine of Scripture, far better than what I was taught.
0: Sure. You know? Yeah. No, that's that's awesome. I think that would clarify a lot of things for people. And I just don't want to take up more of your time. So, what what's next for you?
1: Um, new book
0: or taking a break from writing? <laughs> well,
1: I have another book that I'm actually about to enter the final stages of. Oh, awesome. Getting and it's going to come out in uh, April, and uh, the name of the book is The Sin of Certainty.
0: Oh, nice. Um, uh,
1: why God Desires Our Trust More Than Correct Thinking. Hmm. And the point of there is, uh, of the book is that um, what the Bible models for us and what we need to really, I think, embrace is the center of our faith is actually trusting God Yeah. Rather than thinking we have to have our thoughts aligned in a certain way before we can do that.
0: Hmm. Nice. I'd like to have and you it, on the show again if you could. <laughs> that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. All yeah. All next spring. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For sure. For sure. You know. Now, how how can my listeners keep in touch with you? What's what's your website?
1: My website is um, the Bible for normal people.
0: Oh, okay. And
1: get it at <laughs> p- ends dot
0: Pete ends, not Peter, right? Pete ends.
1: No, Pete. Yeah, not not Peter. Okay. <laughs> Again, some some reprobate took Peter Enzo a long time. <laughs> Um So that's that's a good place. I have a blog there. I have um, you know books uh, are all there. Like speaking engagements coming up, all that kind of stuff. It's a lot of oh, information. Nice. But I, I blog there, you know, two three times a week.
0: Oh, okay, um,
1: and that's probably the best way to get a hold of me. So.
0: And Pathios, you're on there
1: um, too. I used to. I'm actually. I had the the new website. I uh, I left Pathios for no bad reasons. I just felt oh, like okay. I jump out on my own and that happened in early August so if you go okay. to the Pathia yeah, site my old site is still active but I have a little message there saying I'm blogging move
0: over okay Yeah. yeah. awesome and you're on Facebook and all that
1: oh Facebook and Twitter and everywhere uh, uh, yeah okay places than I should be probably cool,
0: cool. Okay. well Peter it's been fun you know, I, you know just I know you have a meeting to attend to so I really appreciate you making the time and for being on the show
1: sure happy That's to be here thanks Josh
0: alright thanks take care Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.
0: What's up, what's up? I hope you guys enjoyed that interview. You know, for a lot of us, we inherited certain expectations of the Bible that, for me, was sometimes hard to accept as I got older. You know, many of us were taught that the Bible was, you know, the acronym, the Bible, Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. You know, you guys heard that before? You know, and that it was supposedly a rule book that had all the answers that we needed in this life. And when I was younger, you know, I'd read some passages in the Bible that were pretty disturbing or just didn't make any sense to me at all. But because I had the assumption, you know, that it's the word of God without any mistakes, I always had to figure out a way to explain those passages away or to defend God or to just plead mystery. You know, like I, I, I always felt like I had to defend it for some reason. But once I stopped reading the Bible like a like a legal constitution and more like a library of different voices and experiences and perspectives. That's when a lot of things change for me. And so the questions we need to ask ourselves is, are the assumptions and expectations we have of the Bible reasonable? Are we approaching it in the way it was intended? So, you know, be sure to check out Peter Enz's book, The Bible Tells Me So on Amazon.com. Or if you like listening to audiobooks like me, Remember, I teamed up with Audible.com, and so you can download The Bible Tells Me So or any other book absolutely free with a free 30-day trial. Just go to www.audibletrial.com flipside. That's Audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E, trial, T-R-I-A-L.com flipside to download Peter Enz's book for free or any other audiobook of your choice. So go check it out. Remember, free is always good. And I just saw a review the other day that someone wrote, and i like to read it. And it's by JLeezy325. And it says, I love listening to the flip side, relating to people on a personal level while dealing with some of our toughest questions. I appreciate the open approach to spirituality and religion. Joshua will interview people of all different backgrounds and theologies, atheists, or Christians, or whatever. It's not about agreeing on everything, but just sparking conversation and new ideas i will continue to support this podcast thank you joshua you're welcome <laughs> and thank you whoever you are for writing that review and based on this and other reviews that have been written you know this podcast is helping out a lot of people you know on their journey and even changing people's lives for the better so if there's one way you guys can really help support the show it would be financially and as many of you know I'm no longer pastoring at an institutional church these days, which is, which is how I used to support myself before, and now I'm married, and so I'm doing this podcast and writing books pretty much full-time now, because believe it or not, it, it's very time-consuming, and it does cost money. So consider supporting me on something called Patreon. You know, you could just give as little as $10 or $5, really any amount helps. so it's really up to you, and it's like a tip jar. Just saying that you appreciate the time and effort put into the show and would love to help keep it going because I'd like to keep doing this show for a long time. And so any help would really mean a lot to me, guys. So if that's you, if you'd like to help out, you can go to uh, patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash Joshua Tongle, just my name. So once again, it's www.patreon.com slash Joshua Tongle. And I'll leave a link in the show notes if that's something that you're interested in doing. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and please let me know how this podcast has helped you in any way by just taking a few minutes to write a review and by rating the show on iTunes because I read all of the reviews, believe it or not, and it's really easy to do and it'll help more people discover the show. And of course, please share this podcast with your friends on Facebook and on Twitter, word of mouth, wherever. It's all good. So, alrighty guys, once again, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you guys on the flip side. Alright, I'm out. Peace.